Right, no pressure, I only teach preaching for a living, so if the sermon's no good, it's only my livelihood, right? (laughs) I'm just really grateful to be with you. My family moved here to North Van from North Carolina last summer so I could take up this job teaching preaching. We live in the city now, but we came to love the North Shore. We just love the outdoor places here, Lynn Canyon and Deep Cove and Cates Park, and I love taking the sea bus to the city, right? Because whatever happens the rest of the day, you can think to yourself, I took a boat to work this morning and feel superior to everyone else around you, right? My boys were in sports leagues here in North Van, and that's when we first noticed your church and saw that, hey, what a great spot they're in to reach out to their neighbors right here in North Van. And then I met your pastor, Todd, who I adore. So I just love that you're giving him this space in sabbatical to rest and to pray and to envision the next bit of your life together. And I can't wait to hear what's coming from this church. So I'm going to read to you and preach to you from Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. So before I do a warning, Luke depicts Jesus as especially in love with the poor. Now, no one objects to that, right? But then Luke also depicts Jesus as especially harsh on the rich. And this is where, as we say, where I come from in the U.S. South, Jesus leaves off of preaching and moves on to meddling. When Mary sings to God after Gabriel tells her about her coming child, she sings, God has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sends empty away. Ouch. Mary, couldn't you have just stopped after the first part of that beautiful prayer? Luke, like Matthew, has the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. But then Luke doubles down. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. For Luke, Jesus is bringing about a great reversal. Everyone we thought was close to God, like religious leaders and powerful people and rich people, are not. And everyone we thought far from God, like poor people and sinners and children and old people, are not. Here's why. God is close to the lowly and an enemy to the lofty. God is close to the lowly and an enemy to the lofty. One thing I noticed living here in North Van for a few months is the kind of obvious fact that there's a lot of money here, right? Now, I know that North Van has an industrial heritage. It built Canada's Navy in World War II and all of that. But the land is so valuable here now. It's not really a blue-collar town anymore. And I also noticed how spiritually impoverished the town feels, how little folks seem interested in the things of God. Now, material speaking, we may be in one of the richest places in all of Canada, but spiritually speaking, this is more like Haiti than that. Can you see why Todd took this Sunday off and had a guest come in to talk about this passage? So I heard of a church in India that changed all its prepositions. It it no longer calls itself the church of Madras, right? It no longer calls itself the church in Madras. It calls itself the church... For Madras. Do you see the difference? 
you, Sutherland Church, are not just the church in North Van. You don't just happen to live here such that you'd be the same if you were deposited anywhere else on the map. And you're not the church of North Van because you're not supposed to be like everyone else in your town. You're supposed to be different, a critical irritant in your town. Salt and light, Jesus is always saying. You're the church for North Van, the place where Jesus' saving work is happening, where it's taking root, where it's growing, where it's reaching out to other people. God's gifts are not just for us. They're through us for everybody else. They're not just for us. We don't get to just keep them for ourselves. They conduct through us for everybody we see. So, this passage I'm about to read and the whole rest of the Bible and the gospel is good news through you for your neighbors. So look what happens as I read when Jesus gets around Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is rich, not good. We already know that, right? Now he's rich because he's a tax collector. That is, he's hated by his fellow Jews. Tax collectors are collaborators with a foreign empire occupying Israel, taking money from their fellow Jews to give it to pagan Rome. And then they enrich themselves by taking even more than is required for their livelihood and their luxury. So the neighbors hate Zacchaeus. Now, some translators say that Zacchaeus can't see Jesus, not because he's short, but because the crowd freezes him out. They won't let him have a place. So he's short, not in height, not in inches, but in stature. So how will Jesus engage this rich and powerful man Boo, rich, powerful, right? Who's been shamed out of his own community and is without friends. Jesus, remember, is on his way to Jerusalem to die. He's the friend of sinners, and he'll soon die between two thieves. So hear what he does with Zacchaeus from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down, was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half my possessions, Lord, I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. He, too, is a son of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Let us pray. Lord, you keep taking sides with the no-account people like Israel, with sinners, with those we hate. Help us, Lord, to be among those you side with. Amen.
Zacchaeus was, a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You guys sing that in Canada, sounds like? Okay, it's a great song. But again, the issue may not be that he's short. Because even short people who are rich usually get front row seats, right? No, he's on the outs with his community. He's short of spirit, not in inches. And yet I love the children's song. It shows that kids can relate to Zacchaeus. They like the guy. Adults, too. Zacchaeus does something foolish to get Jesus' attention, and it works. So whoever you are, child or adult, perfectly in command or a little bit foolish, Jesus is someone you can relate to. All right, so he's passing through Jericho. This is still a town in Palestine today. In fact, it's the oldest continually inhabited town on planet Earth. How's that for a fun fact you can amaze your friends with over lunch? Here's a picture of a sycamore tree in the middle of Jericho. Can you see that okay? Yep. So there's tourists around it. Our guide told us that's the very tree that Zacchaeus climbed up. They don't actually live that long, but it's a really cool tree in the middle of town. Stuff happens in Jericho. Do you remember the Israelites? They're occupying the land, and they come to Jericho with these big walls, and they march around the thing, and the walls came a-crumbling down. Yet another children's song that we own to the town of Jericho. Remember the Good Samaritan, the religious leader types, past the beat-up guy on the other side. Samaritan stops and helps. That's on the road down Jericho. And now Jesus' last stop on his way to Jerusalem, where he'll die for the whole world, is in Jericho. The word Jericho means fragrant in Arabic. It sounds nice, right? But when I was in Jericho just a year and a half ago, we couldn't stand the flies. And our tour guide said, yeah, you know, anywhere in the Middle East where the flies are bad, they say, well, the flies are almost as bad as Jericho. They don't put that in the Chamber of Commerce brochure. Jericho was wealthy. They did a fine trade. So their tax collectors did great. And their chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, did best of all. Tax collectors come up a lot in the stories of Jesus, right? They first come to hear John the Baptist preach. And they're struck by his preaching. And they ask John, well, what do we do? And he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. That is, go out of business. They only lived off of the more beyond what the extortionist Romans demanded. So imagine the subprime lender or the payday loan shark or the casino owner asking what they had to do to be saved and being told, don't exploit anybody, i.e., here's a real conversion coming. you got to find some other line of work if you want to follow this God. Now, do you see what God thinks of those who abuse the poor, right? So why on earth is Zacchaeus interested? Why do you go here preaching like that? He's heard that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Zacchaeus could use some friends. Jesus is drawn to shamed people. Jesus is drawn to to shamed people. And Zacchaeus is shamed. His clothes are fine. His table is full. But he can't find anybody who'll sit there at his table with him. So he goes to see Jesus. 
And the crowd blocks him out. And so he climbs a tree. Now this is wonderful. When was the last time you climbed a tree? Especially if you're above, like, age 12, right? I mean, if I tried to climb a tree right now, I would have to avail myself of Canada's excellent health care system. I would tear something you don't want to tear. Grown-ups don't usually climb trees. And in art about Zacchaeus, he's shown to be rather ridiculous. So here's an image from the Eastern Orthodox Church of Zacchaeus, a grown man, and a tree looks silly, right? Here's another image from the church in China of a man in a tree. It looks silly. Third image from the church in Africa, a man in a tree. It looks like a bird's nest he's sitting in up there. All of these artists show that a man in a tree looks kind of dumb. Now, imagine someone here in Canada, fine hand-tailored suit, getting out of their McLaren and climbing up an Arbutus tree to wait for Jesus. And you have the image. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Foolish for trying to see Jesus? It's one thing that happens as a culture becomes less culturally Christian is you have to look a little foolish to follow Jesus. A little dumb. (laughs) Like a person in a tree standing out. Don't mind me. Just waiting for Jesus here. Nothing to see. Move along. (laughs) Well, Jesus looks up. And sees him, and notices him, and says his name, Zacchaeus. How does he know his name? Come down from there. I'm coming over to your house. My invitation, your treat. (laughs) In fact, what Jesus says is even stronger. I must stay at your house today. Jesus has found the most shamed man in town. And so he has to go to him. That's who Jesus is. Now, this is remarkable, especially if you think about the harsh things Jesus says about rich people in the Gospels. The only person in the whole Gospel who turns away cold an invitation from Jesus to follow him is called a rich young ruler. Just a few chapters before this story, Jesus tells him to sell all he has. Now, admittedly, that's kind of a high ante for being a disciple on the first day, right? And the man turns and walks away, and here's what Luke says. When he heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But then just a few chapters later, here in Luke 19, Jesus says he has to go to rich Zacchaeus' house. This is amazing. Jesus is so good he can even save rich people. Right? All right, now I know what you're thinking. Surely we're not talking about material wealth here, right? I mean, Jesus in Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And surely rich people can be holy. Poor people can be mean. We've all bet both kinds, right? Just a little while ago, Jesus said we have to be rich toward God. And a lot of the richest toward God people I know are also rich in other ways. Maybe, (laughs) but this text pushes the other way. Zacchaeus announces, hey, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give them back four times as much. And I'm giving away half my stuff to the poor. I don't think he means it spiritually. Or Jesus wouldn't be impressed, right? Like, I'd like to pay my visa card spiritually, if I could. 
Jesus gushes. Today, salvation has come to this house. There's no rule about poverty and wealth in the Bible. There's no absolute commands, no obvious way to handle it precisely. And let's remember that compared to the rest of the planet, everyone in this room is unimaginably rich. Two billion people live on $2 a day or less. We can't even imagine, right? So we're all in trouble. The rich young ruler is asked to give everything away, like an alcoholic who has to quit cold turkey. This man, Zacchaeus, promises voluntarily to give half away, and Jesus loves him for it. Billy Graham said this, You tell me what you think about money, and I'll tell you what you think about God. Our checkbook shows our priorities. It shows what we really value, what we really worship. Another preacher, Jim Forbes, says this, No one gets into heaven without a letter of recommendation from the poor. Yikes. Wealth, one scholar says, is a matter of peril and obligation. Peril and obligation. Money is dangerous, and having it obliges us to God and to other people who need it. Now again, look, there's no hard rule. There's nowhere that I can just show you that says, okay, you have to give it all away or half of it away, or 10% of it away, or none of it away. The Bible does say we have to be generous. So generous the world thinks we're being ridiculous, crazy, preposterous. That's what Jesus calls salvation, living that way. Right here, he says, the kingdom of God is broken out. And Zacchaeus, you're not frozen out any longer. You're in the seat of honor. A friend of mine tells a story about a church in Ontario where an old woman worshipped. She heard stories like this, crazy stories, her whole life, and one day she did something about it. She left church and did something her own family tried to stop. She had an empty lot beside her house. Now, land in Ontario is not, like, as valuable as in the lower mainland, but it's not nothing, right? Bulldozers show up, a sparkling house is sent up a few months later, And when it's done, she takes the keys and the papers and finds a single-parent family who are living above a laundromat and says, here, this is what Jesus wants us to do with our stuff. The family didn't get to the lawyers in time. (laughs) But a poor family was blessed, and a rich woman was blessed, and the kingdom inched closer. And Jesus, don't you know, somewhere said today, salvation has come to this house. Now, look, you got to be careful. You hear enough of these stories, you start doing weird stuff, right? Another example. Millard Fuller was a wealthy businessman in mid-century America, and he was miserable, a tyrant. His marriage is falling apart, and so a last-ditch effort to save it, they go on vacation. Why is this, like, a good idea? Let's spend all our time together for a few days. Surely that'll help things. So on the way to Florida, they stop in Atlanta, and they see a man they'd heard is a good and holy man, a man named Clarence Jordan. And Jordan told Fuller, all right, here's your problem. You're too rich. You're addicted to money. And money is a terrible master. It's making you a tyrant. So Fuller heard something of the call of Jesus, and he started giving away his money through an organization they founded together called Habitat for Humanity. The poor would get a home with their sweat equity involved and other people's money, and the rich would get an honorable way to divest themselves of their wealth. 
And Millard Fuller's marriage was saved. And his faith was saved. Now, he never had too little after that. There was still enough. But he didn't have too much anymore. And that was good for his soul. And salvation came to lots of houses that way. So I hear housing is a bit of a spiritual issue here in Vancouver, right? (laughs) Lots of houses are worth millions. But how can they be full of salvation, which is worth more and costs nothing, and yet demands everything? In our story, salvation is imagined as hosting Jesus, having him over for dinner. Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. That is, Jesus has come to the house and put his feet up on the table. And he's come not just to Zacchaeus alone, but to everyone in the house. To his spouse, to their parents, to their children, to anyone under his roof. So salvation is making an extra place at the table for Jesus. And it leads me to wonder... Who have I had over to my house who's a sign of salvation? And so I went back over the last few weeks. We had a priest friend over. We had some students from the seminary. We had some friends from back in North Carolina. All professional religious types. All Pharisees, like me, right? Conspicuously absent from my table was anyone who would set good, respectable people to grumbling, complaining, why is he so close to sinners? You shouldn't do that sort of thing. But that's who Jesus has over. So a friend of mine, when I was a pastor, he was a parishioner in North Carolina, was always having homeless people over to his house. And his kids worried. We, we think dad has kind of lost it. He says, no, actually, I'm perfectly sound mind here. I'm just doing what the Bible says. His neighbors complained, look, you're hurting the value of the property here in the neighborhood. He said, According to Jesus, I'm helping the value, but whatever. His extra bed was full of people who could never have him over because they didn't have a bed of their own. And I wonder about this. Who do we spend time with that puts us on the outs, sets people to grumbling? Not our friends, but God's weird friends, right? The church is to be like Zacchaeus' house, a place where salvation has come. A place where everyone can belong, especially those who don't belong anywhere else. Where I worship in the city, 10th Church, there's a man who kind of troubles other people. He's got mental illness. He talks too loud during the sermon. He says inappropriate things in social times. And so I was asking the pastor about him, and he said, yeah, that guy's a problem, you know. But he said, you know what? He's our best volunteer. He's here every time I'm here. And I'm going to tell you, that guy says things that are straight from God. Stuff you need to hear that no one else will say, he'll tell you. (laughs) Do you see how the church has to be a place for those who don't have another place? And how God especially honors us if we honor God's weird friends? It's the rest of us who need to adjust. All right, so there's a problem at the end of this story. The version I read says this. Look, half my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. So in this reading, Zacchaeus was a sinner, tax collector, all that. He meets Jesus, and he's changed, and he shows his changed life with a costly repentance. That's a good reading of the story. That fits. And it's the only one I knew before I got ready to preach to you fine people about this story. Here's another reading that's different. 
It's closer to the Greek. It would have Zacchaeus say this to Jesus instead. Look, my habit, Lord, is to give half my possessions to the poor. And if I ever defraud anyone of anything, I always pay back four times as much. Now here it's not that he's suddenly converted. It's that he announces he's more righteous than the supposedly righteous people wearing the religious leader clothes. And Jesus agrees with him. Now remember, the crowd snubs him, turns their back on him, and then disses Jesus. He eats with sinners, they say. So in that world, and in most religions, the way this works is if you're with a bad person, it's contagious. It can make you bad, right? So if you get around a leper, you can get leprosy, that sort of thing. Eat with a sinner and you're a sinner. Jesus reverses that. So he gets around sick people and touches them and he heals them. He gets around sinners and transforms them into holy people that they weren't before. So here's what this reading would suggest. Sure, Zacchaeus does a job that makes other people look down on him. But he doesn't defraud anybody. If he ever notices he did, he pays it back quadruple. And he gives up half of what he makes to the poor. So here, it's not so much that he's converted to something he wasn't before. Rather, Jesus hears what he does and says, Wow, you're a son of Abraham, just like everyone else. No less than any preacher, or Pharisee, or missionary, or saint. Because you have a heart that's generous, like God's heart. What's happening here is Jesus is redefining Israel. John the Baptist had already said, hey, being a child of Israel isn't a matter of choosing your grandparents. Can't do that anyway, right? Don't think because you're in Abraham's bloodline you're safe from judgment. John's words, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. I tell you, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. So, on this account, to be a child of Abraham is to act like Abraham, like God wants, with generosity and justice for the poor. So Jesus says, he too is a son of Abraham. In other words, are you ready for this? Being faithful to God isn't a matter of doing religious things. It's not a matter of going to church, tithing, all that stuff. Although those are good things, because those bring us close to God. Being faithful to God is having a heart that's generous for the poor. It's giving oneself away extravagantly for those who can't repay. Which one is a Jew, Jesus asks. The one with perfect Sunday school attendance, or the one who does what God wants in the world? And once you ask it that way, the answer is obvious, right? Jesus is always seeking out excluded people and aligning himself with them, taking their side. Soon he'll align himself with sinners. That's all of us. And he'll die for us in Jerusalem. So the question for us is who is excluded among us? Now, this is tricky because here in Canada, y'all are really proud of being inclusive. And it's very impressive right? But we're human beings, so we still gang up and exclude people. So in my country, for example, I'll just pick on my own people, a major candidate for president announces plans to kick out millions of people from the country and to bar millions of other people from the country for racial and religious reasons. There it's kind of easy. Church, align yourself with undocumented workers and Muslims and you'll find Jesus there among the people being excluded. In Canada, and the U.S. both, I 
think there's very few kinds of people who are fully ostracized. But here's one. Sex offenders. You bring that kind of person up and everyone spits for good reason. And there are churches courageously doing work in that group of people who no one wants near them. And you think, yeah, that's what Jesus does. Goes and loves those who everyone else wants far away. So what about us in Vancouver? I hear a lot of talk of foreign money driving up housing prices. I see Maseratis and Ferraris. Someone's buying them. Y'all don't look like people who buy those kinds of cars, right? So would Jesus align himself with offshore money that's buying Canada? Do you see how risky the gospel is? That God is on our side and on the side of the people we like the least? (laughs) The people we hate the most? Jesus is always off with them. Wait, don't go there to them. A friend of mine's Catholic priest. And whatever else you think about Catholics, they are not liberal on social stuff. Only celibate male priests, right? No openness on things like homosexuality. So, he's getting ready for Mass, and a transgender couple walks in. The church is clear what it thinks about this, right? Nevertheless, Father Philip goes and greets them, hugs them, shows them to their seat personally, drapes his mantle over them spiritually, and he shows we're going to love the way God loves So Sutherland Church, for North Van, how about us? Who do our neighbors need to see us embrace? Who feels excluded so that we need to say, no, Jesus looks at you and loves you and invites himself over for dinner. I hope the fridge is stocked. (laughs) All right, greatest thing about this passage, almost done, is all the seeing. Zacchaeus tries to see Jesus. But he can't see. So he runs ahead, climbs a tree, risking ridicule. He really wants to see, even if others see him as ridiculous. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus sees him first. The onlookers see and grumble. But Jesus sees Zacchaeus has generosity like God by giving things away. Do you see what's being said here? So here's what we should do. Do something a little ridiculous for Jesus. Run ahead of others. Climb something you shouldn't. Look for him because he's coming. And when you do, you'll see Jesus was looking for you first. He'll call you by name and you'll do something even more ridiculous than the ridiculous thing you already did before he got there. You'll say, hey, I'm giving up half my stuff. I'm going to change my job. I'm going to work with the poor. I'm going to love my enemy. I'm going to forgive someone unforgivable. I'm going to live as a Christian in a culture where there's no extra credit and it might hurt you. Others will grumble. You can't do that. That's ridiculous. That's outrageous. And you won't care. You'll just go on trying to see Jesus. Because once you've seen him, nothing else matters. Nothing.